What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get back to this uh, inflation print we had today. Um, it's high, but it's coming down, but maybe not coming down as fast as people would like. Alice Andres joins us. She's U.S. interest rates and FX reporter with Bloomberg News. Uh, Alice, what was your takeaway from the print we had today on CPI? Yeah, I really thought that the market reaction, especially on the Treasury side, was just really wrong-footed this morning. I was very uncomfortable with the bull flattening that we saw after the CPI number. I think that the market really focused on that lower headline number and that drop in year-over-year and inflation. But I think that the the thing that the market was really missing was that big shelter component. And I, I really think that the whole thing was about shelter. I mean, I think that either way you slice or dice it, if you take shelter out of your analysis or put it back in, I think that inflation is still rising. So, for example, if I mean, if you look at it, inflation is coming down, whether you're looking at the headline core or super core. But the fact of the matter is, is that the Fed really targets the super core. That excludes the shelter component of CPI. And if you take a look at it, it's running at 5.7% year over year. And that surpasses core CPI at 5.6%. And to me, that's just an indicator that inflation is going to stay pretty sticky. Yeah. And I mean, so the core... Um, was higher than the headline, and you're saying the super core is even higher than the core. That's right. And we're hearing more and more people, Alice, uh, voice concerns about the stickiness of inflation at these levels. BlackRock, I heard Wei Li this morning on Bloomberg Radio talking about that, but the ECB is also concerned about the stickiness. The Bank of England is also concerned about the stickiness. So is is inflation at these levels, you know, 5% here to stay? Oh, I think it could stay there easily, if not go higher. I mean, the indicators that I, things that I really like to look at is something like housing and cars. So what I'm seeing in the housing market is that, you know, we have a spring market, right? So that's supposed to bring a lot of supply, but it's not. And the fact of the matter is low supply, people still out there wanting to buy houses. It just artificially keeps housing price is strong because there's still so much competition to get the few houses that are coming on the market. The other thing is that rents, because housing market is staying high, I think that rents are going to stay high. And that's the big you know, component that the Fed wants to take out or put back in of their, of their analysis of inflation. And I think, again, any way you slice it or dice it, with or without shelter, inflation is staying high. The other thing that I've been looking at is um, transportation. And actually, this month, transportation contributed positively to CPI. And the thing is, is that autos, I think, are going to actually stay high as well. Uh, I've noticed yeah, that. I've noticed a good. big. Ba- I've noticed 
uh, resilience in used car prices. And That's CarMax said that yesterday. Yeah, and you haven't seen, you know, Tesla's price cuts notwithstanding, you haven't seen um, new car prices come down at all. Yep. They continue to rise. So that's got to that's be a problem as well. And what, what is really happening is that incentives are picking up. I don't know if you're noticing this, but, you know, watching TV, I actually saw an ad last night on TV, and I thought, oh, yeah, you know what, I haven't seen that in a while. But in doing a little bit of analysis, uh, incentives have risen about 5%. Uh, we're starting to see 0% financing, 3% financing, and huge double-digit cash back, double-digit cash back. Think about that. Uh, those are on, like, more expensive cars, but still, that's just, that's a lot. And so I think that because the consumer is so savvy, right? Mm. Prices start to come down. People that are working with cash on hand, boom, they're going in and buying. Like, you know, kind of pouncing like they're doing on housing. If something comes on the market on the right block that you like, boom, you're going to buy it. Car prices uh, showing some incentives, cash back, boom. Consumers are pouncing. They're very, you know, price sensitive and savvy. So I think that new car prices can stay firm with these incentives. But the thing is, is that cars, new cars, are still really expensive. Yeah. So that shifts the subsector into the used car market, which I think can stay strong. Yep, absolutely. And we kind of heard that from CarMax yesterday. I wonder, yeah. Alice, why does the Fed like to strip out for this super core data point? Like strip rents? out shelter, yeah. But doesn't everybody? <laughs> it, it affects everybody, doesn't it? <laughs> Everybody's got to pay rent or a mortgage. Yeah, but I think that, you know, it's just the indicator that the Fed is targeting. They had talked a lot about, you know, housing prices remaining eleva elevated and rents remaining elevated and how they think that rents are going to reset lower once these leases come up. I, I just don't really get that logic because if you're a landlord and you know that housing prices are high, and you missed an opportunity to raise rents in the last year, I don't understand why you would think that leases are going to reset lower. I, I don't think that that's really going to happen. In terms of the wrong-footed move in the markets, uh, especially in rates, Alice, we, we saw a drop. I mean, I mean, looking at the 10-year, we saw a drop in 10-year yields. Now it's coming back to unchanged around 340, 341. Um, how how do you see this reaction, and what does that mean the market expects from the Fed? Well, right after the data, the market priced in 4% Fed funds rate in January. I, I mean, that's a full point below where we're at right now. I thought that that was just crazy. And I think that, you know, what happens on these big numbers, right? You know, you get a lot of emotional trading and position trading. And I think that what you're seeing right now is the market coming back a little bit to life. We're pairing some of that steepening that we saw, and we're backing off of that rally. Rates are rising a little bit. Um, I, I think that this is the right move. And, you know, do you have to kind of remember, sometimes it takes a day or two for, you know, big numbers to get digested by the markets. And also participation isn't exactly yep. that high. The other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, Real quick, Alice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so we're gonna have to, we'll, we'll get that next time because we got a short on time. We'll get the we're gonna get you again. Yeah, Alice we want you really back good, for yeah, sure. Talking about rates, you know, she was a former floor clerk at Bear Stearns, so she knows all that trading stuff. Alice Andres, U.S. interest rate uh, reporter for Bloomberg News. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. 
and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. story that caught my attention yesterday, Carnival's chief financial, this is the cruise business, Carnival's chief financial officer, David Bernstein, isn't worried about rising interest rates, unlike other finance executives. As a cruise line operator looks to pay down debt rather than finance, and I was when I was reading that, I was saying, boy, their creditors are happy. Credit analysts must be happy that they're paying down debt. So I figured, let's check in with Jody Laurie. She covers, uh, she's a credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, covers this industry. Jody joins us here via Zoom on her vacation day. Oh. So we really appreciate uh, Jody making some time there. Jody, talk to us about Carnival Cruise Lines here. This is a company that's focused. I mean, a lot of these cruise operators. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, man, they rushed into the market, raised cash, uh, sensing that this could be really bad for their business, and they were right. Some of them had to pay like 11, 12 exactly. percent, right? I mean, some of them sold debt for uh, way too much interest. And, and A sign of the time. So uh, what's Carnival doing now? Sure. So Carnival is certainly one of the more interesting companies under our coverage these days. I mean, let's let's take a little look back, right? So the company added about $24 billion or more to its balance sheet during the pandemic. Um, it's about $24 billion above where it was at the end of 2019. So you're talking about $35 billion sitting on the balance sheet that they have to deal with. Management is targeting, it's going to get down to about 33, 33.5 by the end of the year, which is music to our ears, of course. But how they're going to do that is always key. They're just getting to the precipice of generating free cash flow. And with that, obviously, they're going to put it towards paying down debt. But I think there's a lot of finessing that needs to go on. And there's a lot that's dependent on the ability for them to get customers on their ships. I look at, by the way, DDIS, Paul. Okay. If you if you put in Carnival Cruise Lines, which I think is CCL Equity, and look Correct. at DDIS, you can see the debt distribution, when these things are coming due, and you can see the average coupon is 7%. So is, is that high um, uh, with a weighted average of five years? How does their, how does their uh, debt profile look to you? It's Jody. definitely a horse of a different color or a ship of a different color these days hmm. than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. They were investment grade rated previously, and so they commanded very good rates at that point. 
now you think about this company, a year ago, they tapped the debt markets and they actually got a lot of flack for issuing double digit issues, right? Yep. So similar coupon to what they issued in June of 2020 during the depths of the pandemic. And so I think management is being very cautious about how and when they tap the debt markets and why. Because even this past fall, when they did issue debt, they issued about $2 billion, they got a little creative in how they did it. They created a new subsidiary where they put some of their vessels and they made it a little bit more attractive to keep rates lower. That complicated their balance sheet. So if you're an average bondholder, you, you don't really understand which vessels are backing your bonds. You know, you're an unsecured holder, so you're really just general um, company ability to pay. But, but the complicating factor of it is, okay, in, in a theoretical bankruptcy, where would I be in line to receive any sort of money? Yeah, that especially if it's in chances. Panama. Yeah. I see, yeah, well, yes. I see yes, like 20 yeah. billion of their debt uh, is out Bahamas. of Panama. Yeah. Bahamas and Caymans are usually generally the, uh, the, the place that they, they go to for the issuing subsidiaries. But yeah, I mean, if, if you're saying, okay, I have these bonds and even, even if it's not, you know, bankruptcy, if you're a high yield company, you always have to think about liquidation, right? If you're a credit analyst, you say, okay, what would this be in a theoretical liquidation standpoint? Because it's high yield. And so that will dictate how the bonds trade. Now that said, you have higher risk, higher reward. So there are some investors who say, oh, then it's worthwhile to sort of nibble at those. There's other investors who say, you know what? There's still a lot of factors at play that could dictate how these bonds behave and, and the, you know, the forecast of this company. I think they're still very much in a turnaround phase. And I think they're still a little bit on the earlier side, although we're starting to get to the point that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. So, Jody, just give us a sense here. I'm just looking at the stocks of uh, Carnival and its peers, and, and they're all down between 20 and 40 percent. So the market's really skittish there. I'm sure there's, there's simple, uh, similar concerns in the credit markets as well. I kind of thought once this pandemic, you know, they started lifting all the mask mandates and all that stuff, that this industry would just explode with demand and occupancies would be like sky high for years in pent up demand. That really hasn't happened or has it? It's starting to happen. We actually wrote a note that specifically spoke to occupancy rates as well as to um, cash flow. So one thing that they have is advanced bookings, which is basically the cash they take in when people book their cruises. They can't book that as revenue until the person actually goes on a cruise, but they can take it in as cash. So that actually helps their business. It's an alternative form of cash compared to, say, raising debt. Um, the, the, the piece, when you think about it from an occupancy standpoint, that's difficult for these companies is the cruise lines were unique in that they got a moratorium, meaning they were unable to actually cruise. They were unable to operate. You compare that to the theme parks, which I know you and I have talked yeah. about it before. Um, and, and the theme parks, they were able to sort of get creative in how they operated. So you take someone like Cedar Fair, they were able to have a wine and cheese festival <laughs> at Knott's Berry Farm. You know, and, and 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 Six Flags. We actually, we my family actually went to Great Adventure and did the safari tour in our own car. Sweet. And you don't have to get out of the car, nor do you want to get out of the car. You know, good and it, it is awesome. a little fun yes. to have giraffes lick it. Yeah, they absolutely. We had a giraffe actually lick our car. Your windshield wipers. On. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. The baboons used to do that. I think they've been a little bit better about how they <laughs> let you interact with them. 
but I was there one time as a kid where they did rip off our antenna from the car. <laughs> <laughs> now I have something on my list. I got to do that this weekend. That sounds awesome. Yeah. It's so, actually, but but it your is, point is that the, very good time. Your point is yeah. that the cruise lines uh, were sincerely disadvantaged vis-a-vis other industries. Right, exactly. So the, so getting back to the cruise lines, you compare that to the theme parks and, and the cruise lines were literally unable to cruise. They had these massive vessels that were either sitting dormant or they had to ha- staff it up so that they had a minimal amount of staff to just keep the basically keep the ships from getting stale. They also postponed some of their capex, right? So the, the just the maintenance capex that's required. And it just takes a lot of time to ramp up from zero. So even though these companies are seeing tremendous demand, I mean, I'm hearing anecdotally because people hear that I, you know, I'm a cruise analyst, they go, oh, actually, I just went on my first cruise. <laughs> and, and you're definitely hearing that more and more, which is music to the cruise company's ears, because the challenge that they're dealing with isn't so much the diehard cruiser fans like my parents, but the, <laughs> the, the people who have never stepped foot on a cruise ship before. The people who are skittish around cruises, or it's just not within their you know, generational appeal. And so that's where the cruise companies are trying to jump over the hurdle is saying, okay, let's get these new to cruise people on the ships and then grow our, our pool of potential customers. Then they'll, they'll, see benef- so they'll see it as beneficial. That said, I mean, there, there is only so much they can cruise. There's only so many days in the year. There's only so many rooms in a ship. And it takes a lot of time to get them from zero to mm. 100% operational. Are they? Are, are they, these companies still investing in ships? I mean, that's to me is the sign of optimism. If you're bullish on, you know, your future five to ten years, you'll build a billion dollar ship or whatever they cost these days. <laughs> yes, I mean the the companies are still very much investing in ships. Carnival has a little bit of a gap in terms of when they're planning to take der- delivery of ships, which I think they're a little bit relieved by. It's less so indicative of what they've been planning, more so of the hold up in the shipbuilder side. Yep. So obviously the shipbuilders, just like every other industry, dealt with the pandemic where they had shutdowns, they were unable to get parts. You know everything you're hearing about the autos similar sort of things were going on with shipbuilding. So a lot of the cruise ships had ships that were scheduled to be delivered that then got postponed, which was actually fortuitous for the cruise ships because it gave them a little bit more time to deal with the fact that they had all these ships that were just not being operating. Yep. All right, Jody, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts here on Carnival and on the cruise industry as it ramps back up uh, post-pandemic. Jody Laurie, she's a credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's on her day off, but she took time out uh, to give us the update on the cruise business. We appreciate that. Two gold stars for Jody. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I want to bring uh, the all-star to the microphone over here, Karen Ubelhart. Uh, she's in Bloomberg Intelligence. She covers the industrial space. I mean, talk about these are real companies, Matt. These are like Deer, Caterpillar, Emerson Electric. I mean, you're going hardcore industrial America. This is General Electric back in the day, I guess you could say. I mean, uh, back in the day, General Electric is still bigger than Emerson, right? I mean, I, I hope so. Big. Emerson is just a $47 billion company. It will put up a, I'm G- not sure what GE is. GE right now, 
102 yeah, billion, so it's still bigger. Yep. But it's not the world's biggest maker of earth-moving equipment. No, this is I like big. cat. All right, Karen Uberhart, senior industrial analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio because Emerson Electric's out there with a deal to buy National Instruments. Karen, thanks so much for joining us here in studio. What is Emerson Electric buying? What is National Instruments? Uh, it's one of the larger test and measurement companies, you know, like when you're in the R&D lab and, you know, um, developing product, et cetera. That is a platform that Emerson wants to develop. It's a higher growth platform. It fits with their automation focus now, and, and they'd been looking. They did say they'd have to do a, a meaningful deal, deal to get a footprint rather than grow their own, and they did it rather quickly. So what is Emerson's core business? I mean, what do I go to Emerson for? Factory automation. Process, uh, you know, f uh, plant automation like chemical plants, et cetera, software, they're getting involved. They took one of the biggest bets on software with buying um, Aspen Technologies to get them into industrial software. This is a new CEO, about two and a half years. He's really trying to make the, co make the company into less cyclical, higher growth, lots of companies are doing, but he's moving quickly. I saw Fortive was the biggest gainer in the S&P for not buying. Um, and sometimes, you know, you just feel good when you don't spend a ton of money well, that it, you thought you were going to. I get, I get that that's a shareholder reaction, but does it leave them in a disadvantaged position for not getting it? That was a financial stretch for Fortive. Uh, you know, um, it is a $23 billion company. They would have had to issue stock or some near stock to, to get it done. Leverage would have been very high. People were nervous about that. Um, it did lead Emerson to pay 60 bucks, which was yep. more than, I, you know, uh, some of us would have liked. The numbers still can work. Um, but, you know, it was higher than... Uh, so it's interesting price. here. So Emerson Electric paying uh, $8.2 billion, uh, $60 a share. The stock was at like 53 before trading today. So a, a premium. Uh, Emerson but did people know this? People must have known this was going on. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. Um, the CEO drew a line in the sand and said, if it's a $60 bid, it's not ours. And uh, okay. so I was in the process <laughs> of writing... Uh, this is a competitive bid. Maybe it's gonna be sixty bucks, and okay. it is sixty bucks. You can still make the numbers work. The the um, the uh, synergies they're talking about one hundred sixty five million in five years out. That's a stretch to get it all the way five years. But Emerson is a very good operating company. They're going to do better than the numbers they say on synergies, and it is accretive even at sixty bucks. But I'm just saying for Natty shareholders, right? The ticker for National Instruments N A T I. Uh, those shares were trading at $35, $36, $37 at the end of 22, mm. beginning of 23. And then I'm guessing just by looking at the chart that shareholders became aware that they had something others wanted to buy because the stock just shoots up um, in uh, the beginning of, of uh, January 23. Well, that's when they, they um, announced a hostile bid. They couldn't, okay. uh, Emerson was trying to get a deal done. They went in at 48, they couldn't get it done. They went in at 53, they couldn't get it done. There was a lot of communication going back and forth. So Emerson broke the news. We're trying to buy this thing and they published all the letters and communications to get them off the show, you know, get them moving. Right. So then they went into a strategic planning situation and got other bidders and this is where it fell out. And Emerson had to fight to 60 to get it from Fortive. Has, is, or how is Emerson paying for this? Uh, cash. They're selling their climate business, uh, and that is part. Of, that's probably why they won. They are going to have nine point nine point five billion dollars in cash from selling their refrigeration and climate, uh, you know, air conditioning uh, components. 
that gets them out of a residential-oriented cyclical business, gives them money to put into a higher growth. Th these businesses, they're, they're, they say, will grow 47%. That's where I know the name from. That's yes. where I know the name. Yes. I see it at my house in the yes. basement all the time. <laughs> they're a market leader in that business, but they wanted out of that to spend money on the, these higher growth, higher margin businesses. So. All right, so if uh, everybody's talking about a recession, your companies, long lead times, make big stuff. How are you thinking about, or how are your companies telling you that they're preparing for a recession? Uh, you know, um, the backlogs are at record levels. It doesn't mean some of that can't dissipate, but there's there's a lot of uh, pent-up demand. A company like Emerson's pretty long lead time, so maybe some of their large projects might get pushed out a little bit, but I don't think they're going to see, you know, like residential construction goes down 30%. They're not going to see that kind of exposure. But they all are still, you know, supply uh, uh, constrained. Um, their costs are still, still pretty they good They still shape. have mm -hmm. getting yeah. that yeah. supply yeah. chain stuff is still an issue yeah, it's for still going on. Yeah, and wow. and in this in this case, automation is a, a growth business. Companies are investing a lot in you know um, EV and semiconductors, etc. There's a lot of money going into the automation business. That's where they're they they are and where they're going in a bigger way. It's running so, on the same track as yeah. AI, really, right? I yeah, mean, uh, uh, automation and software is happening at the same time as we're seeing these big leaps forward and manufacturing what about consolidation we were talking about you know the string of m a we've seen this week obviously not in um, industrials but mostly in uh in materials commodities now we see this deal is there a consolidation wave happening is this a one-off uh it's i think it's a strategic move there's like four or five people in that business um you know uh the other big one in in the u.s is keysight they were talked about as maybe buying them but I don't think it, they were serious contenders. And you don't see a lot of other uh, yeah. deals on the horizon, uh, yeah, the companies you cover? Not, but what's happening is they're breaking up. I mean, oh, okay. all the multis have are becoming more focused and more, so, but what a, a lot of that is happening is spinoffs. They're creating new companies. Um, like the, the HVAC companies are mostly pure plays now. They came out of larger companies. So that's the biggest wave in the large industrials is breaking up, being more focused. And that's exactly what Emerson did with this move. Selling climate, trying to get into uh, more. Uh, it's so funny. They go through these. Stuff. When I first started yes. working yes. at Bloomberg in Frankfurt, I was covering Siemens at the time and they were. Uh, breaking up, and then they got together, and then they're breaking up. I mean, it's it's, it's good to be an investment thing. banker covering yeah. industrial yes. America. It's <laughs> absolutely a wave, and 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 you know, it. Ha I I'm here a long time too, and I've seen them put them all together to lower the cyclicality, to be in different businesses, be more diverse. Then you see them breaking out up to be more focused. Um, I my feeling is, um, you know, once we get in a bad cycle, and some of these focused companies, you know, get whacked by a bad recession maybe they're gonna want a little balance again. I mean, this thing comes and goes and comes and goes, as you know, over long periods of time. 20 seconds, GE, the stock's up 35% over the trailing 12 months. Are they done? Have they fixed it, everything? Uh, well, you know, there's a lot a lot of legs in aerospace. That's gonna be a great standalone business. I, and and uh, I think what changed is people started to get confidence on the energy business, which has been the dog for a while. And, you know, it's been going up for a while, but then they had an investor day and pitched the long-term story for, you know, the energy business, the yep. IRA, et cetera. There's a lot of money flowing into that business. They're in wind power, et cetera. Right. So now the two pieces look like they're gonna be okay and the stock is taken off. All right, so. good news finally for our friends at yeah. General Electric. Yeah. Karen Uberhard, she's in industrial analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, the absolute expert on all that industrial stuff coming out of uh, middle America. She's the best. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Get to our next guest, Johan Gran. He's a vice president and head of ETF strategy at Allianz Investment Management. Johan, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. I'm just looking through the notes here, and Matt and I talk a lot about the volatility, particularly in the Treasury market. But there's been some volatility uh, in the equities, although it's been kind of low recently. But you've got a product called Buffered ETFs. What is a buffered ETF? Oh, hey, hey, yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's good, uh, good to talk to you. Buffered ETFs and all their simplicity effectively are for investors that care about uh, having some downside risk mitigation in their portfolios. So effectively, all it is is exposure to the S&P 500. And uh, you can participate in the S&P 500 up to a cap. That's the, the catch, if you will. Um, so in the case of our two products, we have one with a 10% buffer. We have one with a 20% buffer. In the case of the 10% buffer, if you were to invest uh, this month, for example, you can gain up to about 18% if the S&P 500 goes up in the next 12 months. And if the S&P 500 is down by 10% or less, then you're flat with the market uh, or flat in your portfolio. So that's at a very high level, that's kind of how they work. What if it's down 10% or more? So in the case of the 10% buffer, if it's down by 11, you lose one. If it's down by 12, you lose two. If it's down by 20, you lose 10. So <laughs> basically, whatever the market is down minus that 10. So wait, wait, so uh, sorry, the, the 10% buffer, you can get 18% upside, but you're protected from 10% of the downside? That's right. And the 20% buffer, what's your upside cap? Uh, the April fund that we have, the upside is almost 12% net of fees. I see. And the downside would be then uh, you get downside protection to 20%. That's right. Yeah. So if the market is down by 20% or less, you're still flat. So if you put the million dollars in on day one here, on let's say April 1st, or even today, actually, it's trading at about the same place. It's been relatively flat so far in, in April. Okay. Um, then you have... You have that opportunity to 12 percent up and then you're still you have 20 percent of a buffer if the market swings down how many etfs are do you guys have right now and kind of where are you seeing the the demand what what types of products yeah so a lot a lot of the demand we've seen are 20 percent product and uh, part of that stems from the the volatility and the <laughs> 
the rate hiking, if you will, in, in the bond market. There are a lot of advisors and investors out there that they'd rather take, uh, put their uh, put their bets on the equity side, on the equity risk premium, when you have a 20% cushion. It's, um, it's rare to see, or you don't see a lot of predictions uh, speaking to a market decline of 20% or more in the next 12 months. So that's a pretty good trade-off for a lot of uh, a lot of advisors and investors, and that's where we see the most the most traction. Well, well, well we what, if, if you look across yeah. the uh, the ETF spectrum, though, um, you know where do you see? I mean, the most demand in the last couple of weeks has certainly been um, ultra short treasury ETFs, right? So if you look if you look at the ETF universe, uh, where do you see the biggest holes? Well, more broadly speaking, that's just a reflection of, you know, where where the plays are being bets at the moment. Right. So we still see uh, some more slightly more aggressive uh, behaviors, if you will, in terms of putting money into equity ETFs. So we see a little bit, a little bit less risk on and a little bit more risk on, generally speaking, is what we've been seeing. Um, now, I happen to believe that that might be a little bit premature, but that's a market economics conversation that I'm happy to get into, if you'd like. So, all right, let's kind of go there, Johan, because we had the, the big CPI print uh, today, PPI coming up, and of course, inflation's job one for this Federal Reserve and, and for the ETF, uh, I'm sorry, the ECB as well. What do you guys at Allianz, what would you make of the inflation print today, and, and how do you think our Federal Reserve is going to respond? I actually think it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, we still see pressure in the service sector. I mean, goods have come down for, for natural reasons, but... In terms of the service sector inflation, you still have some wage inflation, and even if there are not numbers that you might see in you know other <laughs> other parts of the world, they're still very high given the target that the Fed has, and the fact that um, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell was talking about 50 basis points just before we had a couple of you know banking issues, um, I think that speaks to the fact that there is still more quote unquote work for the Fed to do, and what that implies is that yes, they're going to continue with this. Rate hike cycle 25 basis points in a couple of weeks here. The, uh, the that I think that's pretty much baked in right now. You have a 75 percent chance of that happening according to the statistics today. But I think that's more a function of time. The closer we get to the meeting, that those numbers are going to go up, and we're going to see the 25 basis point hike. So I think that's pretty much uh, more or less a done deal, pending any any strange behaviors in the market in the next couple of weeks here. Yeah, the market's pricing um, in some cuts after that. Do you think we're going to see any this year? I, I don't. I, uh, I'm in the camp of no. I, uh, I just have a <laughs> look at the end of the day, the, the Fed consists of human beings, right? And <laughs> like it or not, they, they can be as data dependent as they want. But I don't think they're going to have enough data points to place what I would consider a very bold pivot uh, already in July. I see some uh, the consensus is that they're going to start cutting in July already. And then every at every meeting um, for the rest of the year after that. I don't think that will happen. I think they will have much more staying power than that. The the decision to to pause is <clears throat> somewhat difficult. We might see it in May, but I can also very easily see the the rate hiking cycle continuing uh, another meeting or two. But it's an easier decision to make. To to make a decision after a pause is much much more difficult because either you have to say, well, crap, we have more inflation than we thought. I guess the disinflation we've been seeing wasn't, after all, pun intended, transitory. <laughs> so they're going to be very cautious with that that part of it, right? So they'd rather go higher for longer than than pausing or cutting earlier. And then on the flip side, if you if you say you're going to, you're going to actually start cutting rates, then the question immediately becomes, 
what is it that the Fed is seeing that hasn't been baked into the market over the past, you know, two months? So, and that that even in itself would create some some real anxiety, and I don't I, I don't think that that's anything that they want to trigger. So, Johan, over at Alliance, talk to us about just the fund flows in and out of ETFs. Are you seeing continued net inflows here? Because it's just been you know I in my investing lifetime, well north of 30 years. This has just been one of the most fascinating phenomena to watch the growth of the ETF business. Yeah, I mean, it, it is fascinating and it's fascinating for, for good reasons, as I'm, I'm sure you've covered in previous episodes, you know, in terms of why the ETF wrapper is so attractive. Uh, but even, even in March, uh, we saw 30 billion coming into the uh, overall ETF industry here in the United States. And uh, it's now back up to like uh, almost seven trillion, six point nine to be more precise, six point nine trillion dollar in market size. And the predictions over the next couple of decades is that it's going to easily double, triple, or maybe quadruple. Um, so the, the, that that flow of capital, if you will, from the mutual fund industry primarily into the ETF industry is um, that that's basically a tidal wave that that's not going to stop anytime soon. Yeah, Brian, um, I was talking to Brian Lake from J.P. Morgan on. Uh, on um, Monday, and he said he he sees 15 billion. That's for the U.S. market. If you look at a, you know the global ETF industry, it's more like 10 trillion dollars. In uh, it's a huge it's a huge market and growing. Where do you think the most growth is going to be? We've seen a lot in terms of uh, for a while we saw factors, and then now thematic. I, I'd say probably actively managed ETFs are the hottest thing right now. What's your take? Well, I guess it depends on the and where the question is coming from, right? But the, in terms of growth, it's going to continue to be in the in the passive indices and the broad market exposure. Uh, that is by 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 far the most dominant part of the ETF um, uh, world, if you will. But in terms of where uh, ETF issuers are going to see the most exciting opportunity for growth and also an opportunity to to uh, uh, to, to generate some revenue is from the active ETF, actively managed ETF space. And then more specifically, the space that uh, Allianz Investment Management is in is the defined outcome ETF space. It's a relatively new space as well. Uh, and innovation has just barely begun in this space. And that is already over. Uh, it's been around for uh, almost, wait, what is it now, three and a half years, maybe. And uh, as of last year, it grew by 10 billion alone. And uh, that growth is just continuing as well. All right, Johan, thank you so much for joining us. Johan Gran, he is the Vice President and Head of ETF Strategy at Allianz Investment Management. And just following up on that, it's just like the growth of ETFs is just extraordinary. You know, you think about it, we grew up when it was all about mutual funds, you know, but these ETFs have just, there's such a superior product in, in terms of cost mm. for, and, and other at attributes as well for so many investors. And the buffer, I mean, uh, the space that Johan and Allianz Investment Management are in, um, buffer ETFs is just about to break out. Yep. I mean, th th they're doing, uh, I assume, very well with their business. I know BlackRock, which is a ETF behemoth, has filed plans to break into the booming buff buffer ETF market as well. So yep. it's a tremendous space. Yeah, we'll stay on top of that. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon on Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, Brad Case joins us, Chief Economist, Director of Research for Middleburg Communities. Talk about a guy who's just way overeducated. All right, he gets Chief his, Economist there, Chief Economist. Is chief the key, economist. That's the key part of his title today. Chief I'd Economist, say, yeah. yeah. All right, 
Burke, uh, where did he go? Undergrad Williams. Okay, not bad. They're the Eves. We cleared that up. Masters in something from Berkeley. Then a PhD from Yale. Then he goes out and gets his CFA on top of that. Uh, and the CAIA, which I have no idea what that is. but well, While you're working at the Federal Reserve, I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's alternative investments. Alternative, <laughs> sure, why not? Um, so I'm guessing he's got everything covered here. Brad, talk to us about inflation out there. You guys are in the real estate business in Middleburg communities. What's going on with the cost of housing? Is that really the driver here for the inflation that is still probably a lot stickier than people would like to see? Yeah, I mean, you have to remember that there are two very different parts of the of the housing market. The, the, the prices of houses that are bought by owners who expect to live in the houses, those are still so expensive. Yep. And prices have already started to decline. Um, and so it, it's it's harder to buy those ha- pro- properties, and people are worried that once they buy it, the, pro- the price will come down. Um, but but the but that's much more expensive than the rental ha- housing part of the market, which is a- it's actually got a lot of a lot of uh, attention last year, because rents had increased so dramatically all across the country. That has gone away. But uh, you know, but that's not yet measured in things like the CPI, because what what they're measuring is essentially leases that people signed last year. This is what I wanted to ask about. And you um, you worked at the Federal Reserve Board. Doesn't somebody at the Fed know somebody at the BLS who can set that straight? Because it seems to be a measurement, a metrics problem more than it is a rent problem. It's not really a problem. It, what, what the CPI is for is measuring it properly. Okay. The, uh, the Fed, when they set interest rate policy, is looking at something a little bit different. So the Fed is worried about inflation, not about the CPI. Now, for a lot of, those pe- for a lot of people, those are the same thing. But if you're a Fed decision maker, they're not. And so the, Fed, the people at the Fed, yes, they are aware. Yeah. And they're paying close attention to and it. And they like, if I'm not mistaken, they prefer the core PCE, right? The yes, they The personal do. consumption... Expenditures. Expenditures, exactly. Yeah. I was looking for the E. Yeah. yeah. So Part they look the at G- a different measure than we kind of, Main Street follows the CPI. Like, there's very little difference between yeah. the CPI and the PCE deflator. All right. So put it all together here. What's our Fed going to do? So I think the Fed is going to continue raising interest rates. I expect them to raise them at the next meeting. I don't, that may end up being the last one. Okay. Um, but the reason that they're doing that is, is that in getting inflation down is very important. And they have finished that job. Inflation, when you measure it properly, is back down un- under 2%. How, but that's how, not how their only I, job. I, I explain that one. Because, uh, you know, what I used, my sandwich, ham and cheese sandwich at the LA Deli forever was $6.70. It's now $9.20. That's inflation for me. And is that going to go down? I mean, that's not. Going it's down. not. No, the Fed doesn't. It, they're generally not not looking to get prices back down to where they were sometime in the past. Okay. They they're trying to say we don't want the rate of increase in prices to be much above two percent. They they don't want it to go down either. And they're actually yeah. there are economic problems that are caused when in, when prices are actually declining. So that's not some not everybody waits. Nobody wants to buy anything, right? Because you think you'll get a cheaper price and in the future. You, you look at something like the Japanese economy, which has had trouble for more than thirty years, and a lot of that trouble came because they were in that disinflationary situation. So the the price mm. here sandwich is not going down back down to five bucks. Okay. What we want is for it to stop going up so aggressively, and that, as I say, really has been accomplished in spite of what we saw this morning 
morning when the CPI came out okay, saying well, five years. How do you five, define that? Because all I look at my econ eco screen is like at CPI, CPI, X food and energy, and the super core, whatever that is, that's all got a five handle on it. Yeah. So what should I be looking at? Or what is the Fed looking at to say, all right, we've kind of done our job here. So so 35% of the CPI comes from the way they measure um, housing costs. Okay. And that's not just rent, but rents are the main piece of information that they're using to, to do that. But as they say, to a great extent, they're measuring the rents that were signed a year yep. ago. Okay. Um, so, so what they're doing in practice is saying, all right, what's happening to new rents? Okay. And new rents are not showing that, that strong okay. growth that they're still measuring. Um, and, and so when you take into account the new rents, then the overall CPI is down in the 2% range. Okay, the government doesn't publish that number? That's right. Why? That's right. Because, the, because they accomplished their main purpose by publishing the CPI or the, or the PCE deflator, okay, that is measuring something different. I'm, I'm just saying that the Fed mm -hmm. is, their job is not to get the CPI to 2%. Their job is to, is to fight inflation. Okay. And those are slightly different. Okay. Right. Now, one of the things that 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 they're that they're that they need to accomplish is they need to make sure people don't expect inflation to stay high. And since people are paying attention to the CPI, that's why it's important to get the CPI down. But uh, and that's the part of the job that is not yet ex finished. Expectations are the problem. Yep. Let me quickly. We only have a minute and a half left, but I want to ask you about housing because I think there's an affordability issue now for a lot of Absolutely. people, um, in, both in terms of price and in terms of rates. How does that get solved? So it, it gets solved fundamentally by just more supply. And that's, that's everywhere in the country, but it's especially in the parts of the country where people are moving to. And so houses, housing prices are just outrageous in places like San Francisco. Um, but people are moving out of San Francisco, partly because of that, but partly because their jobs are moving out. And their jobs are moving to places where it is somewhat easier to build housing. And so, you know, my company's uh, situation is, you know, we're in that part of the country where the people are moving to because the jobs are moving there. And, um, you know, it's a long-term story. There is, it, it will take years for us to build enough housing for everybody. Um, but over those years, a lot of those people will move out of the high-cost parts of the country and to the, uh, to the places where the jobs are moving to. Middleburg, Virginia, is that where you guys are? We are not located there. We're named no. after that town. Okay. Where were you guys located? In just outside of Washington, D.C., in Virginia. Okay. All right. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Middleburg communities. Uh, next time you're back in Europe, we'll get you back in here. you got a lot of good stuff to talk about. I'm just looking at Middleburg, Virginia. looks like a very nice little uh, town there. I've never been there. It's like horse country. I was more interested in Williams. It is I Googled Williams versus Amherst to see. I, was, oh, I thought boy. I was going to see football scores, but everything I got was like, Williams has more access to nature. Apparently, Williams has better food and dorm situations. But Amherst is close to Northampton, which has a lively arts town. So it's not really the same kind of thing you'd get if you Googled Ohio State versus I know, Michigan. It's a big rivalry. It's a huge rivalry. <laughs> yeah, the biggest little game in America. That apparently. is exactly right. Brad Case, thanks so much for joining us. Chief Economist uh, at Middleburg uh, Communities. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg. Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk weed. Huh? Why not? Morgan Paxia, co-founder and managing partner of Poseidon Investment Management, uh, joins us. They have a Poseidon Dynamic Cannabis ETF, the ticker's PSDN. Morgan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here. Uh, we want to get a state of the cannabis business these Especially days. Especially after Tilray's disappointing revenue numbers yeah. came in yesterday. What's, what's the weed uh, market look like? 
Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to be with you all. Uh, I'm here in rainy Miami for the Benzinga <laughs> Cannabis Conference. Um, with, it's a really interesting time in our industry. Um, companies like Tilray, as you as you know, had a pretty lousy quarter. Not not their first, not their last. Um, there are several companies in our space that really won't make it through this period. There was too much capacity built. Um, regulations didn't really keep up, and so you know the the weaker companies are falling. By the wayside and the good companies are, are managing through um, so that's what we're seeing right now um, we're seeing that here live at the at the conference i'm at this week um, great attendance uh, mood is pretty somber because it feels like people don't want to celebrate if they're doing well because they see others um, struggling in this time so um, you know through a tight capital market like we're in though it's it's brought a lot of focus on fundamentals and companies are really being uh, very astute with their cash. They need to get to a, a point of cash flow positive and uh, really thinking about their ROIs, how they're deploying capital, what they're doing on their cost side. Um, so as the demand continues to grow, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing you that know, translate to the bottom line. When I get into a somber mood, I just look for a little sativa. That kind of boosts you up <laughs> sure. a little bit, you know, gives you a little energy boost. Um, wh why yeah. aren't we seeing explosive sales figures from these cannabis companies? I went down to the uh, grand opening of the first legal weed shop in New York a couple of months ago, and the line was wrapped around the block for days. Mm -hmm. How come that's not coming through in the numbers? Sure. Well, remember, cannabis is still a state-by-state -state market, and New York is is an abject failure from a legal standpoint because yes. the regulators have not opened up legal doors, right? So there's very few legal retail, even though there's retail all over New York. Most of that, or 99% of that, is completely illegal. So, um, which is actually very scary. There was a there was a guy actually shot and killed in in uh, what was it, in uh, in Bronx yesterday. We, we prefer the term uh, unregulated, Morgan. Sure. Okay. Well. <laughs> That's not helping the regulated market so much. So that's part of the problem why New York is not doing well. But if you go to like New Jersey or Connecticut, those are states that are doing great. Or Missouri. Missouri just in uh, the month of March had $126 million of legal sales. So it really depends on where you are. All right, uh, just but New York's got a lot of work to do. All right, Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. We'll get you back on again to get the update here. Maybe the next time uh, you're in <coughs> New York. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe we can get him right back on tomorrow because that wasn't enough time. And no. I want to hear more about the conference okay. down there. So I'm going to ask Eric Molo, our producer. All right, we can do that. If we can. And we'll ask Morgan, obviously, if he has yeah, time. Yeah, if he's got yeah. time. He's down in Miami. Morgan Paxia, co-founder and managing partner, Poseidon Investment Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.